Thank you for downloading the 16th episode of Iconocast, the science and science advocacy podcast. This show will be a variation from prior formats. It's a show with multiple topics. I am Mike Harbrick and my co-host is Greg Layden. On this episode, Greg and I talk about the natural beauty of Arizona and the geological forces and the history that shape it. We shed some light on the blogging network science blogs and the influences had now that it is shutting down, not in a big crunch, but in a heat death. And in the final segment, Greg Layden will be talking to Shantan Kisharaju, creator of an Amazon Echo skill to tutor mathematics. It's not a robot, it's not artificial intelligence, but it is a new concept in ways to use technology to expand our abilities. So, Mike, we have a, uh, an interview a bit later on with an individual who's made a, an Echo uh, app that runs on your Echo that helps your kid do math, and we'll come to that later. But first, I was wondering, have you had any interesting encounters with science in your day-to-day life lately down there in Arizona? Well, yeah, like you said, as you know, I uh, do live in Arizona now, and one of the great things about Arizona is that being as dry as it is, um, the the geological formations uh, don't have as much water erosion, um, so you can kind of see a lot of the uh, past activity with the Earth's crust, with volcanoes, and with uh, buildup of sand from either oceans or blowing dunes and so forth. So... I hike a lot. I hike pretty much every weekend, and not this last weekend, but the weekend before, I had gone up to Sedona and on a hike through this gorgeous, narrow chasm between two rocks with a great creek called Oak Creek. It's Oak Creek Canyon, and there's a trail called the West Fork Trail um, that skirts in between cliffs. Of, uh, of the narrow canyon and um, in the area where the trail is the cliffs seem to be about three to five hundred feet high from the bottom of the trail and um, it's a great place to go through because it's really a great illustration of how geologists can use current features to determine the history of the crust of the earth and the surface and the areas that we walk through Arizona at one time was at the equator as a tropical area, and due to continental drift, uh, it was a pretty temperate zone. And we know that just because of the fact that in the fossils, there are a great many tropical fauna. There's been several seas that are kind of washed over this area of the continent. So, so the rocks are about 1.3 billion years old in some cases, and it's a red wall formation is like the deepest layer. Uh, that they've discovered or that really explored so far. And then from that, the walls that are now in the canyon have been building up with uh, various layers of limestone, uh, which is um, compressed um, shells, seashells and so forth, that have been converted into, well, basically lime by time and pressure. And it's kind of the same process as the White Hills, uh, the White Cliffs of Dover, kind of a chalky formation. And then uh, limestone is like the bottom layer that you can see. And then as you kind of go up, you can see the different layers of sandstone that's going through. And Sedona is pretty famous for all the red rock formations. As you're driving through there, because of various uplifts, falls, earthquakes, and so forth, you can see all the different layers of sand as they've been laid down. You can see the direction of the wind 
based on how the layers uh, tilt. Um, if it was coming from the west, then you can kind of see like a uh, the prevailing winds. Of course, you can see that there's uh, the, the striations of the rock will lean that way. So it's really really fascinating just to see the ages of the earth while walking through that canyon. Zane Gray lived not too far away from Oak Creek Canyon. He had a, a ranch there. There was a movie ranch uh, pretty much at the beginning of the trail where there are still the there's still like an um, apple grove, apple tree grove in that area. Even though it's not occupied, you can still eat the apples from there. But there's the ranch houses and, and uh, the stone foundations are still there. One of the great features about Arizona that um, creates uh, a lot of these canyons is uh, the Mogollon Rim. And that's the English version or the English way to say it, but it's really a Spanish word. It's named after a governor of New Mexico from the 1700s. But it's a 200-mile stretch of cliffs formation that basically the, the, the southern edge of the Colorado Plateau. There's a difference between 800 to 1,000 feet um, from the Colorado Patrol, uh, uh, Plateau to like where the Venus Valley is. And so as it's receding, you know, the weight shifts and so forth. And so there have you know, been earthquakes over the last few million years that have caused a lot of these formations to be created. One of the things that I learned yesterday was that we usually find the petroglyphs in areas where there's either a crossroads or where there's uh, water uh, streams meet. Uh, because those were like areas where they would use them to communicate like between tribes and say, okay, well, we've got this to trade. You know, do you have that to trade and that type of thing? So they would use the petroglyphs a lot of times to communicate with each other and uh, conduct commerce. So next weekend, I'm going to go up to uh, Superstition Mountains where there are really a lot of interesting rock carvings um, and petroglyphs. That'll be kind of fun. That, that's also where there's a, uh, a one of the local traditions. I think it's a it might be a Pima or Papago tradition. There's a, a line of that limestone maybe that you were talking about up there that mm-hmm. makes it look like a high water mark, which it isn't. But it, it, there's a tradition of, of you know you know how it's said that all cultures have a flood in their mythology. Right. That's not true. Most cultures don't have a flood <laughs> in their mythology, but that one does, and and the flood is marked on those mountains. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they use that as part of their mythology? You'll probably see it in a historic marker, but I might be thinking, again, it's been so long because I've, I've been to, uh, hanging around in, in the uh, desert of Arizona that I don't, I sometimes confuse things. <laughs> oh. But I remember flooding is- one thing that was really cool is because the sandstone has different uh, density depending on uh, whether it was uh, laid down at the bottom of the ocean or along a beach from waves or if it was laid down by wind-blowing dunes, it has a lot of um, variations in the density of the sandstone. And the denser sandstone um, have a lot of iron content in it, and so it rusted a lot, and that gives the, gives the rock its distinctive red color. But the denser areas, or the less dense areas, or the less dense layers, had the water was flowing through there much more rapidly and leached most of the iron out before it had a chance to rust. So that's one way that you can tell uh, different layer and different age on there. But the, I also didn't know until the other day is that there is actually an extinct volcano that um, forms a lot of the base of the city or the village of Oak Creek, which is a little bit towards the west of Sedona. Um, but that was active 
from period uh, for three only three million years from six million years ago to three million years ago, and you can see a lot of ejected um, uh, basalt uh, that that uh, is in the, on the trail. So it's a really interesting mixture of of rock. The other thing that's really cool about Arizona too is that with the formations of the rocks, turns out that quartz is a mineral is uh, very has a very low uh, melting point compared to other rocks, and so as formations are being um, made it, in, in the heat and the pressure build, the quartz will actually flow in between rocks, and so there's a lot of quartz veins, and there's a really pretty quartz vein, probably about a mile and a half from where I live, but um, it's just it's it's amazing to just kind of look and see how all that stuff kind of came together and created the landscape that we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a great, you know, this, for the next several months, if we leave the house, we'll be to go skiing. We won't be seeing any geological formations. We'll be <laughs> under snow. Yeah. And as it is, with all the glacial activity here, everything's already buried under glacial tills. So we don't, we have those canyons here. We have those canyons and those deep valleys and, and the views to mesas are just covered with glacial till. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You know, dozens of feet, sometimes more, glacial till. So it's all this rolling, wet landscape with a lot of geese and ducks, as opposed to, you know, that broad, those those broad arroyos amid the many buttes and mesas with a lot of, you know, snakes. Right, in lizards. And, but the other thing, too, is that because it's rocky and, and dry, um, it... It's not as covered up by you know, like layers of soil and so forth, so you can really kind of see the raw uh, yeah. history there. And and like you mentioned too, Minnesota does have um, a lot of those same features. And for people that haven't been to the Science Museum of Minnesota yet, um, in the in the upper like right where you go in to the main entrance, there's a great display of I think it's like 25,000 years ago well, where St. Paul, where the Mississippi River was really wild and flowing through there. <clears throat> so, Yeah. Yep. So there's some new stuff going on with you, too, um, that we wanted to talk about. And I wanted to bring up, because uh, um, it's something that really has a lot to do with how we met. <laughs> so kind of the end of an era that I'm really grateful for having existed. And science blogs, which you've been writing for for several years, they're, they're going to be no more, huh? That's right. We got a notice from the management of science blogs uh, about this sometime in the first week of October that said that science blogs would be shutting down at the end of the month. So that's tomorrow is the last day. And they, they were, we're asked to be to keep it secret until the end of the month. We were asked to keep it secret, and we're also told if there is some way anyone could think of to, you know, get someone else to take over science blogs, that would be fine. Mm-hmm. But, but keeping it secret and searching for someone to take it over are two completely opposite things. You cannot do both in the same yeah. universe. <laughs> so small number of bloggers that are still blogging there. Uh, we've been talking about the idea of somehow getting, creating an archive, just keeping the site alive as an archive, not a, no no commenting on it, and you know just mm-hmm. an inactive site. So the stuff is there. So we asked the management things like how much. What would it take to do that and so on? And they gave us a figure for how many dollars they spend a month keeping the site going. I don't remember the exact number, but it was hundreds of dollars a month to keep the server going, wow. which I thought was a bit high, but I don't know. It just seems like a bit high to me. But um, And so 
there's a possibility that something like that will happen, but it really doesn't look like it. So I went through science blogs, my blog on science blogs, and deleted about 20% of the contents. 17% of that was stuff that really needed to be deleted, like something that was not an interesting discussion, something that was very current at the time. We're having a party down at the park, come and join us, that's sure. it, and that kind of stuff. And then there were four posts that had thousands of comments, and they were mostly pretty ridiculous. They were mm. climate deniers, and, you know, and I think it's an important archive, but I took those posts and converted them into giant PDF files. Oh, Okay. And then remove them. So there's a document that I will eventually repost so people can look at it if they really want to look up this stuff. But it's the kind of thing where when you have thousands of comments on a few posts, I felt that would be harder to manage on a WordPress site on a smaller scale that I have. Right. So I just I just got rid of those. And then I, I basically moved everything. So everything is now on Greg Layden's blog at greglayden.com. As you know, I used to blog at Greg Layden's blog. No, what is it called? I, I used to blog at a blog called Evolution, not just a theory anymore. Yeah. Yeah, right. I remember that one. And I was at greglayden.com, and mm -hmm. it was a WordPress blog. And science blogs asked me to join them. And when they did, they wanted me to blog about evolution and creationism and science and technology. And we talked about what to name the blog, and we took some time thinking of a name. But we didn't like any of the names, and they eventually said, mm -hmm. look, you, you already have a name, so why don't we just call it Greg Layden's blog? Yeah. So the science blog became Greg Layden's blog. I, they didn't want to use any... They didn't want a, a, me to use the word evolution in the name of my blog because there were already about four blogs that had the word evolution in them, and they were just trying to keep things. It just it was. I think they were correct. You don't want to just yeah. have five things called evolution itself. No one can remember what it is, right? So, so uh, my science blog became that, and eventually, evolution not just a theory anymore. I renamed it the X blog, which is a homage to the X Club, which is a club that Thomas Henry Huxley created for himself and his friends as a place where certain elements could be kind of left out of the conversation. They could go and meet and have conversations and talk about stuff without mm -hmm. people showing up. They're basically were ditching the religious leaders at the time and, and the, 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 the people who are always showing up at these science things and being all religious and stuff. They were ditching them. They, it was a secular uh, enterprise. And so the meetings of the, like the Royal Society, those had to be open, but this was a place where they could just Right. He'd sit together and, and uh, have their brandy and cigars and, and talk about what they were working on. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And, uh, it, so I call it the X-Blog. And so now the X-Blog is gone. It's just back to being Greg Layton's blog again. But it's all mm -hmm. the same blog. The original evolution, not just there anymore, I posted on it. Then it became the X-Blog. I just continued to post in the same WordPress installation. And now it's the same one. So those are very, very first posts are still there and everything all the way through, although I have gone through and cleaned up a few times. And so that's what I'm doing. I can't tell you why Science Blogs closed. It was originally uh, a production of Seed Corporation right. run by Adam Bly. Seed eventually bought into some social networking entity. I don't remember what it was, but something like Instagram or something, and started heading off in some other direction. And that's when National Geographic came in. And National Geographic, despite what everyone says, never owned Science Blogs. Oh they, no, they never did. But but even even the bloggers didn't understand this well enough to actually explain it. Uh, you know, so it's very hard for me to make the case that they never owned it when we have PZ Myers and Orac saying that they did because yeah, you know, but they're just wrong. They didn't. Uh, Science Blogs was still a separate entity, but the ad space was all handed over to National Geographic. I see. And in return, National Geographic invested in the enterprise, and help redesign it. So we could call ourselves National Geographic Science Blogs. 
Turns out this is how National Geographic does everything except their magazines. Their magazine is made by National Geographic Corporate, uh, uh, Institute. Everything else they do, all the specials and everything else, mm -hmm. all, every single, every, National Geographic has never made, or at least in the last 50 years, has never made a television or, or a documentary. What they've never made, they haven't made a single one. You might have thought they made one because you can go watch them. Right. But they're, they're actually made by separate corporations that are enterprises created by National Geographic and somebody else, an investor, working together to create this one product. Is that kind of the same model as what the uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting uses, where they'll, they'll channel through, but they're produced by independent uh, producers or corporations? Exactly, except that National Geographic isn't actually even, a, isn't even a, an entity for delivery. And, and, and by the way, for the last uh, many years, the corporation that they typically partnered with to make a special was Fox, uh, 20th Century Fox. Or some version of Fox. Fox itself has changed as an entity. Not Fox News. That's different. Yeah. But, but Fox Corporation, the Murdoch Corporation that owns Fox News, also invested in those enterprises. They then apparently left their association with science blogs. It's almost like they just stopped answering the phone. Huh. You know, they just weren't there anymore. And then I think months after that happened, we were told it happened. Not that long ago. So I've been calling myself, I've been calling this blog, National Geographic Science Blogs, I think for like a year after it wasn't, but we were never told, and nobody cared. So that happened, and, and that meant that uh, Science Blogs was basically a, an operation of this woman named Vera. I don't know who she is. I've had a conversation <laughs> with her on the phone. Uh, there's another guy, Wes, who like kind of seems to be the main contact person. He's quote-unquote community manager, and Vera is like the business manager. And they've been running it. I don't know if how they've been, how the finances have worked, or if they've been just keeping it alive out of the goodness of their hearts, or if they've, you know, I don't. Uh, but I know that they were trying to find someone to buy it. I, I had a conversation with Vera about that. I don't know mm -hmm. how long, close to a year ago, uh, they were trying to to buy it and get somebody who got by it, and that just never happened apparently. So then they just decided that we're done and we have to now go away. So it's so it's over. My old blog, which is now my new blog, is pretty much getting the same traffic. Science blogs was that. So that's the story. I remember that it was pretty influential as um, as a concept uh, back when it started. I don't, I wasn't paying close enough attention to know how much of net, other networks might have been for science, but there are a lot of people that wrote for that that went on to other things. And um, Chris Chris Mooney. Um, yeah. And he's with Mother Jones right now in the no, Washington he's with, Post. Yeah, he's mainly with the Washington Post. He's like their top right. science reporter for there, yeah. Obviously, P.Z. Myers and, uh, um, and Ed Brayton were strong pullers from that, and they've got their own blogs at other networks now. And a number of, you know, the, the, the other part of the history of the science blogs, I just, you know, give you the very big history. The other part of the history, as far as I know, is, uh, is um, that one of the, like you said, it was a unique thing, and the philosophy of science blogs was, to uh, leave the bloggers alone, let the bloggers do what they want, and there was no editing, editorial activity, or anything like that. But really, there was so little editorial control that there really should have been some. It was like less than there should have been. Uh, it could have been there could have been some more help. There could have been more organization, and there were attempts to do that. I got involved in a couple of projects that were just let's do a topic, let's take a topic and make a blog about that topic for a while, mm -hmm. an upcoming election or something. Um, and then one day, even though even though Science Blogs was sponsored by Shell, 
Yeah. So Big Oil was sponsoring sponsoring science blog and science blogs and uh, which people should have objected to. I think I, I objected a little bit, but you know I don't know. It's, it's how it works in the internet. See, people sponsor you. Pepsi got involved. Remember Pepsi? I do remember that. Yeah, they were right. so uh, they were given their own blog, right? They were given their own blog, but General Electric had already been given their own blog, and Shell yeah. Shell had already been given their own blog. The GE blog was engineers and scientists from GE blogging alongside a scientist from science blogs about various topics, and it wasn't very. It ended up not being very interesting. I was right. one of the main people working with it, and I I found it to be completely uninteresting. Shell got its own blog to talk about energy, okay? So they were doing that. And then Pepsi got their own blog to talk about whatever they were going to talk about. And it's like, it was going to be, the whole idea was to reach out to corporate science and say, let the corporates, because Pepsi has scientists and GE has scientists and Shell has mm-hmm. scientists, let the scientists from these areas come in and be part of this, for better or worse, when for, for some reason somebody got pissed off at Pepsi, that Pepsi was there. They weren't pissed off at Shell. They weren't pissed off at GE. But because someone in the main group of bloggers, I don't know who it was, saw Pepsi and went, no, it can't be Pepsi because all the reasons you would want to say yeah. Pepsi's bad. And uh, what the science blog's immediate response was, okay, we're not going to do this. And they immediately eliminated the Pepsi blog within seconds, literally seconds. But the outrage had feet and it couldn't stop. And every blogger who was already thinking about leaving science blogs, because mm-hmm. at any given time there would be in any given month there would be one or two coming in and going out, they they hooked their departure to the Pepsi outrage and stormed out in a stint. I'm not saying that they were wrong. I'm not saying that they shouldn't have left because of Pepsi. I'm saying yeah. that they should have left because of GE and they should have left because of Shell and that they were being hypocrites until they suddenly realized that they weren't. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's just to me, it's just it was ridiculous. The Pepsi mm-hmm. outrage was ridiculous. PZ and I, I think, basically agreed on this. Um, uh, but he, he left anyway. Um, he used Pepsi-Gate as a reason to leave. But I don't think he was actually being that explicit about how science blogs had done that one thing wrong, because I think he noticed they had done other things as well. Um, the, the other way science blog left this mark, and it was a temporary mark, because it was badly misguided, I think, was the idea, because of some of the bloggers that were there, because the bloggers were left to do what they wanted to do, Right. It was therefore perfectly okay to have a blogger be um, not nice to other people, and management didn't bother doing anything about that. So you had bloggers whose entire reason for existence was to be a jerk. Right. Physioprof, for example. And the idea was people always telling others to quiet down, get in line, get with the program, be nice, and that is in a sense a form of repression, or can be used as a form of repression. That tone and policing thing, yeah. The tone policing thing. So therefore, yeah. because tone policing is a form of repression, we therefore must have zero consideration of tone ever. And if anybody actually goes out and decides to not be a jerk, they are being repressive of others. And it wow. became really extreme. I mean, just like a physioprof stuff. ISIS, mm-hmm. physioprof, a few of the other. So, um, they were not contributing anything. I, I think that they they did they weren't contributing any any other things. That's all they were really doing. They're occasionally talking about. Every once in a while, somebody would write something about some something um, that wasn't just this, but this is mostly what they were doing. And that was a big sort of those are among the people who stormed off from science blogs and made it really nice when they left. Were the people who were the tone police, the anti tone police tone tone policers. <laughs> Your tone has to be that you're a, an abrasive jerk or you're not being you know honest. Or you're not being honest, right? Yeah. 
And, you know, and I, I could see merit to what they were doing. But again, for them, it was all or nothing and all wasn't, I hate to say it, but their tone was wrong. <laughs> I got into science blogs after the original, original group. There were like three groups. The first group and then the second group, which considered themselves part of the original, although they weren't. And then the third group, which was me and others. And I was not interested. I was not, I didn't even know what blogs were. I was not watching blogs. I started my own blog and it was within a year, I think, that they asked me to join a very short time. So I wasn't reading science blogs, so I didn't really know what they were doing. But there were people like, I think PZ was in that first group, Orac was in that first group. I think Dispatches from the Culture Wars was one of the first groups, yeah, too. Because, uh, and Mark Chu Carroll, because yeah. he was involved. And a lot of the people that have been involved, I think, in the Kansas School Board and uh, were blogging. Remember, like in 2005, when there was a big uh, set of legislative hearings about whether or not they should include questions about evolution on science exams and right. uh, a lot of those you know a lot of the spaghetti monster people that started blogs those were along the first wave of the science bloggers yeah and that was a big a big influence of science blog was was organizing around that issue and yeah. also science debate now science debate was not a science blog project at all at all no but, uh, but there was a science debate blog there for a while and sure Charles Kirschenbaum blogged the science blogs and she was one of the co-founders of Science Today. So right. that was also supported a little bit. Uh, one of the things that I tried to do in the last phase was to try to get the uh, science blogs to uh, bring in climate science bloggers. And I had several science, climate science bloggers who were interested, and science blogs never followed up, except no. in one case. Just one case, Peter Gleek uh, joined us. But yep. other than that, I had the idea of actually asking Real Climate, Real Climate to join, and they as a group said no because we don't want to have any ads on what we do and i could totally understand that but i was uh, but it was there was at, at the same time it was like well this is interesting but i don't know about the ads that was sort of the response so it never got past the point where they definitely said no but they but science blogs never got to the point where they could even say yes so it, it's it's telling as to how mm -hmm. science blogs like you you said the evolution debate was a big deal of science blogs and there were a few other things like that that happened but where was climate change other than me uh, and Peter, there's been really almost no, uh, there's been a stoat writes about it sometimes. But James uh, James Rinchin was writing about climate quite a bit too, wasn't he? He, he was, and he still does, but not I don't think yeah. a science blog. Yeah, uh, uh, there was a little, but there should have been a dozen bloggers writing about science about climate change. Mm -hmm. Right, <laughs> it's the biggest issue of our time. There should have been, and there's so many different sub areas to work on, including activism. There should have been a couple of serious activist blogs. There should have been. Some modeling blogs. There should have been some paleo blogs. Right. You know, there should have been a whole bunch. But, but at that point, when it became obvious that that's what should have happened, at that point, science blogs had stopped growing and they stopped adding. I remember being involved in a little bit, and I don't know if you want to talk about this publicly, but you, some of the blogs in order to promote had secret delicious users that were uh, going through and selecting articles that they would promote on delicious, kind of unknown to their own delicious followers that they were that they were part of that. Do you remember doing that? Okay, what I remember is internally here was a discussion. Internally, there was uh, they wanted to have a list of of sites that so you have to put it in a way that makes it sound a bit nefarious. I don't think what we did <laughs> was nefarious, but it's so typical. Science blogs. Just, we had we had a running list of blog posts that were like the the top blog posts. 
Now, the problem is, because PZ had so many followers, he, if you just did it by how many people looked at the post, how many clicks it got or something, right. his would always, his, and whatever post he posted one or two a day, it would just be the top ten blog poster with just PZ Myers blogs. Uh, you could take another tack by adjusting for blog size or something. There were various ways, and people were very distrustful of each other, and actually the, many of the bloggers, not me, but many of the bloggers were distrustful of the management to handle the job of just picking blog posts and saying, just putting them in the sidebars, oh, here's some other great posts to look at. Okay? So the idea was to give each blogger a number. I think it was five, maybe it was ten, I think it was five, and say, get your friends, get people you know to make an honest effort to pick out your best posts, but also any other posts they like from science blogs. And on this one account, like mark them. I think I think it was a delicious account. I don't remember how it worked exactly. You were mm-hmm. doing it. You were one of the people doing it. I think. Yeah. And there were a few other people. And so the idea was to get a kind of jury that was evenly distributed among, like like the, the defense lawyers get to pick their jury. Right. They want, ideally, they pick a jury. The prosecution pick a different jury. We each got to pick our own jury with the same number on it. So an even distribution of basically jurors were picking our posts. So my people would be looking at my posts, but any other posts as well. So that gave this ranking of posts that was, in, that was, it was like having two senators from every state, you know, so oh, sure. gets two senators in Montana, which doesn't deserve even a tenth of a senator, gets also two senators. It was done that way. That was the purpose of it. Uh, that ended up going for a while. I don't remember how well it worked or how well it didn't work, but it got replaced by another system where each blogger got to promote three and no more than three of their own posts we have a check mark on our on our page that we write on that mm-hmm. says highlighted. So we check the highlighted and it goes into that column and that becomes on some list. It goes on some list of so we can highlight three a week of our own posts. I, I didn't quite understand it back then. Then um, so that makes a little bit more sense. And though you're right, it's not as it's not nefarious. Well, my, I choose to remember it as being not nefarious. I don't know. Well, it's it's kind of too bad that it's gone away. I mean, I. I honestly don't don't follow blogs as much anymore as what I used to. I used to get a lot more um, my information uh, from blogs, and I had some really good bloggers on my uh, Google Reader. And I think probably about the time that Google dropped their Reader app, I think that's kind of when I stopped following. It was harder to track. Yeah. Harder to track blogs. I kind of slowed down, and eventually my my own blogging tailed off. And it's been really hard to get started on doing another blog. You think that blogging is something that's kind of gone by the wayside now? That that is not ever really going to be as much of a factor in social media as it had been for the last ten, fifteen years. I think it, I think it's changing, and I think it's changing to something that I actually wanted to change to, and that is why I originally got into blogging. Mm-hmm. Like you like you say, in, in relation to social media, is very different. So people who might have blog, written a blog post on something write a Facebook post now. Yeah, and, and it's shorter. True. You know, it's a different, yeah. and they have a different kind of conversation going. But when you look something up, like the other day, my my mother-in-law gave Huxley a an old MacBook, mm-hmm. and it still had her account on it. So I'm trying to figure out how to restart the MacBook in in reset mode. Turns out you can't. And I've never been able to, by the way, ever restart an Apple computer in reset mode successfully. <laughs> never. But there's a way to do it. You have to go in. And you have to go in and hack it. But looking up how to do it, you get all these Google results. We no longer use an RSS feed to follow blogs. What we do is we Google some, right. and then we come across the information. And some of that information is in blogs. So the, the most likely a, a, a blog a blog that you're likely to read is probably the blog that talks about what's involved in installing the latest version of Cinnamon on your computer. Right. 
right? You're going you're gonna to read about, you're going to look up something about something that's going on, on your computer, and you're going to find the information, and of the eight or nine top hits that you're going to be able to look at, half of them are going to be these specialized technology blogs. And those are blogs. So they're not the same as what blogging became. But when I started blogging, I wanted to create a writing giant document that talked about evolution and creationism and stuff for science teachers, and especially biology teachers. I never really did that as much as I wanted to. I did create those posts, but not as many as I wanted to. I have, in the meantime, created, you know, among the tech, among the posts that I have that are most commonly read, they're posts that where people have a problem, they look it up at the internet, and they find my posts. How to get rid of spiders in your house. How to install a version of Ubuntu. Why is my poop green? Uh, what happens if I eat mm-hmm. bolt? Those are my top posts, other than something that's really current. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I I'm going to shift my blogging a bit in that direction. Other than just whatever I feel like writing about, I've always done these posts. You know, so if you want to look up what is the best definition of natural selection, if you look it up in Google, you will find my post on that. I wrote it years ago. Every now and then I revise it and update it. Um, there's you know I have 30 or so posts that deal with different aspects of evolutionary biology that are constantly being looked at by students looking stuff up. And that's what I originally wanted to do. And that's what blogging still does. There's still people where It's not a peer-reviewed paper. There's no website right. to put it on. If you put it on Facebook, it's gone. That's the problem with Facebook is that whatever you put on Facebook is gone minutes later. Right. I mean, you technically can find stuff, but in practice you can't. So you can't put useful information on Facebook, really. So a blog is a good place to put that stuff. So that's what I intend to continue to do, and I think that that's why my blog will still be – that's where my blog will be useful to some people. Okay. So um, let's talk a little bit about the interview that um, we're going to include with this with this episode. Um, before we bring it in. We recorded the interview yesterday, and basically this is, and you know what the Amazon Echo is? It's basically a machine that listens to you all the time, which some people don't like. And when you say its name, in this case, for the Amazon Echo, the default name is Alexa. Right. However, we're going to bleep that out, because anybody who's listening to this and has Alexa next to them, their machine is going to help, you know. Like, Alexa, order 10 pounds of kitty litter. No, Alexa, order 100 pounds of kitty litter. It's So it interfaces with information. So it's kind of like a, it's an app, only it's sitting there in this little round box, like a robot. Mm-hmm. And so you can say what time is it, or you can keep your shopping list on it. You can ask it to play songs. If you happen to be a subscriber to Amazon music services, it'll play whatever you want. There's a version that's cheap and it might, and the, the speakers are not very good. It's, you know, very affordable. And there's a more expensive version with nice speakers and so on. Anyway, there's these, there's these services that you can get and turn on. So you can play Jeopardy, for example, or various games, or have it do things for you. This is where the RSS feed lives now. Okay? For example, networks that have or multiple streaming channels, right. they'll, have, they'll have their most recent streams with what the shows are about available. So you say, Alexa, tell me what's going on on Twit Network. And Twit Network will then tell you all the current shows. If you actually buy the Amazon version of a Roku, it will also interface there. If that works, that sounds great. The Amazon version of a Roku is a hundred bucks, so I'm not doing it anytime soon. But you can no. say, you know, I want to see the latest Doctor Who or something. And or the Man in the High Castle, right? Right. I want to see the, uh, what 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 has come of, of my of my favorite shows. What's come out recently? I don't know what you can do. Anyway, so this gentleman will be interviewing in a few minutes. You know, showing the interview in a few minutes, made a, a basically very simple, straightforward service which gives kids math problems. You know, Joe had 10 apples and Mary had 15 apples. Which one had more apples? That's the very basic level. And then there's mm-hmm. other advanced levels. And uh, there's several different levels. And the higher level are not really high math. It's still grade school level. But it's also possibly useful for people with 
various sorts of dementia. So you can uh, apparently asking people these basic problems or early Alzheimer's is a good way of getting them, sharpen them up a bit. So if they have that application as well. So it's for little kids and really old people. (laughs) It's like many, it's like many things for little kids and old people and no one in between. But we talked a bit about how he did it and why he did it and so on. So it's an interesting example of technology being deployed in the educational context in the house by a robot. A friend that I had in, uh, in uh, Roseville when I lived there, she had one, but she mostly just used it for playing music. She'd say, Alexis, turn on the current and, and to listen to music. And that was right. pretty much all she used it for. But it, was, it had a good sound. Iconocast will eventually have a feed going to Alexa. I don't think it's that hard to do. And it's basically an, R, an RSS feed for this, for this podcast will be just something. Say, Alexa, play the latest Iconocast podcast and it'll... Hi, I'm here today with Shantan Kicharaju, and he's the inventor of a new skill, which is a term used for an Amazon Echo, a new skill called Math123, which is designed to help, mainly to help young kids engage in math and math practice. Uh, And I just wanted him to tell us about this product. Shantan, can you tell us what is Math123 and how does it work? Hello, Greg, and hello to all your viewers as well. Thank you for having me on your podcast. So I'm here today to talk about the Amazon Echo skill that I have developed. It is called 123Math, and it is available on all Alexa-enabled devices like uh, Amazon Echo, Dot, Tap, Show, or even the newest uh, Alexa-enabled Fire TV. So the way you start the skill is, if you're a first-time user, you simply say, Alexa, enable 123Math. So once enabled, it's pretty self-explanatory from there. So if you already have the skill, the way to invoke the skill is to say, Alexa, open 123Math. So if you're a first-time user, you say, enable 123Math to enable the skill. But there on every day when you want to play with the skill, you just have to say, open 123Math. There are three difficulty levels, easy, medium, and hard. And each difficulty level tests the user in a different uh, mathematical function. For example, the easy level, the skill tests you on your basic addition, subtraction, and greater than, lesser than, before, after kind of questions. Um, In the medium level, uh, the questions also test you in your multiplication and division, and as you graduate to hard, uh, you'll have more word problems on algebra. There's also a competitive element in the skill where the skill keeps track of the daily high scores at every difficulty level. So the users are always competing with each other to maintain their lead for that particular day in the level of difficulty that they are playing. Well, I can tell you I've already installed it, and Huxley and I have been playing around with it, and we enjoy it quite quite a bit. It's, it is challenging, and it, it works well, and it seems to do its job. What has been the general response from users? Do you have a clue as to how well received it is right now? The response to the skill has been phenomenal over the last one year, Greg. It has been uh, trending on multiple different categories on the Alexa app, as well as uh, we have some great ratings and reviews uh, for the skill on the uh, Amazon.com website. The customer base uh, and the number of utterances are pretty much uh, doubled over the last uh, couple of months, and uh, the trend has been really healthy. Who is your customer base? The skill is intended for uh, many users, actually. It's not just kids alone. Uh, even though kids could be the majority of the people who use this skill, uh, I've actually reviewed this skill with some of my friends who are doctors, and they felt that 
this could be a great way for elders to exercise their brain every day and do some simple math problems and you know avoid uh, the chances of uh, getting memory related illnesses uh, as they grow older so it's pretty much for anyone who would like to you know practice some simple math problems on every day uh, and to keep their cognitive skills uh, sharp i know everybody wants to make the latest uh, amazon skill can you give us a basic idea about how you go about this you know how do you conceptualize a project like this how do you develop it how do you go from a basic idea into something that you can actually produce and put out there as something that people can use i'm a strong believer in the lean startup methodology of product development to summarize the process there are three different um, phases in any product uh, development build measure and learn so basically you start with an idea or a hypothesis then you write code um and also make sure that you have hooks in place to capture metrics which will validate your hypothesis so once you have the metrics then you can validate your hypothesis and if it looks good you move on to the next uh iteration of your product development if not then you will have to decide at that point whether to continue with this approach or pivot and take a new approach a common mistake many product owners do is to build a product with all the bells and whistles and the jazz um before they even test whether there is interest in the product the idea has always been like you build it and people will come and i have burnt my hands myself uh, in the past uh, when i worked on a couple of other ideas where um i spent a lot of time actually an year building a product with a lot of different bells and whistles only to realize that nobody wanted it when i released it and this time i made sure that i didn't do the same mistake again uh, but instead i uh, built a minimum viable product uh, tested my hypothesis that there is interest uh, for this type of skill and then uh, kept adding on to it how did you come up with the idea originally the idea occurred to me when my 5-year-old uh, son vivan uh, was uh, having a facetime conversation with my brother in india so vivan came back from school uh, preschool and he was um, super excited to tell my brother about the uh, skill that he has learned at the school which is like uh, his uh, ability to uh, identify what number comes before or after certain number so the conversation between my brother and vivan uh, went like this so my brother asked vivan what number comes after 49 and vivan said 50 and my brother clapped and vivan felt super excited and this went on for 5 6 times and every time uh, when my brother gave some positive reinforcements uh, vivan was uh, eager to continue playing that uh, game so then i thought why can't we build as alexa skill which would do the same thing that my brother is doing uh, which will ask uh, kids questions so then i decided again going back to my past mistakes uh, of product development this time i wanted to make sure that i put a minimum viable product out there so i launched the skill pretty quickly i um, developed it in probably 2 or 3 days um, and um, just added like five different question types uh, and released it there was there was not even a difficulty level it all it used to do was randomly pick one of the five different question types and it will uh, ask the user a question so once i released the uh, skill uh, i started seeing some good response and then that's when uh, 
uh, I started uh, realizing that there is potential uh, for uh, expanding this skill. Some of the reviews were great and some uh, of them were not that good and they kind of uh, asked for more types of questions. So that's when I introduced uh, the difficulty level concept where uh, there were two difficulty levels, easy and hard, and the easy had all the basic uh, questions that any elementary uh, school child could easily answer, and the hard had a little uh, tougher questions uh, which uh, included uh, uh, multiplications and divisions, and all of these are word problems, by the way. And, and when I released that secondary version of the product, um, there were some mixed reviews. The users were having difficulty in answering the questions within the 8-second default timeout uh, limitation that Alexa platform has. The, as a skill developer, I have no way of controlling how much time Alexa will wait for you to give an answer. So that was a little challenging problem to solve because there was not a way to go around it unless I had a database where I remembered uh, the question that I asked the user and when the next time they came back uh, I retrieved the uh, session from the database and then had provided the user an ability to continue from where he left off. Since it was a minimum viable product uh, I did not include a database at that time I just uh, made sure everything was in memory. Um, however like once you exit the skill and you come back uh, everything's lost, right? So it starts fresh again. So the score that you accumulated uh, is all reset to zero. Uh, there was constant feedback about this uh, limitation in the skill, and uh, that's when, you know, I built the database version of the skill where now I persist the state uh, of the game in the database, and every time you come back, I retrieve the state so that uh, there is continuation. So if the parents would like to explain the question to the child um, so that he can think about it and then answer it on his own, uh, he has ample time to do that. And once he is ready with the answer, he comes back and says, Alexa, open one, two, three, math, and it continues from where you left off. So that actually um, helped me relieve a lot of customer pain points and uh, resulted in excellent reviews uh, from there on. So. This, again, is a um, great example of how uh, customer-led innovation uh, helps and also using a lean startup methodology of building a product. I heard that you have been tinkering around with some other IoT projects. Um, can you give us an idea of what other stuff you're into right now, what, what you're tinkering around with right now? I'm an innovator at heart. I always like to play with the latest gadgets and build innovative experiences. I did tinker with few of the devices in the IoT space. The first project was a simple one using uh, Amazon Dash button, which when you press it, would send a text message to your loved ones. So when my son comes back from school, he presses the Amazon Dash button and it would send me a text message saying that he is home. I could reply back to, uh, to it using the Alexa app and send a message to my Echo, which then he could retrieve it by just talking to the Echo. So all this experience uh, involves my son not using a mobile phone at all. The second one uh, is a much more complicated project. It included uh, Raspberry Pi, Arduino, and XP. I built a home automation system which will enable me monitor the lights and fans in my house, and uh, I could control them using a mobile phone. So Amazon provides a lot of uh, uh, ways you can connect these devices uh, to the cloud. 
So I would uh, highly recommend uh, anyone trying to get into the IoT space to learn the AWS IoT uh, service and build some cool products. In the future, I'm trying to build my own device using Alexa voice service. So I'll keep you posted on that once I build it. Shantan, thanks very much for your time. Can you uh, tell people where they can get a hold of you if they want to make any comments on your product or find anything else about what you're up to? Greg, thank you very much for the opportunity. And viewers, do try out my skill 123 math on the Amazon Echo. And let me know your feedback so that I can make it even better. You can reach me at alexamathskill at gmail.com. Thank you once again. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Iconocast, and please be sure to share it with your friends. We wish to thank Shantan Kasharaju for being our guest. On our next episode, we look forward to talking to Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez of the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana.